0: Today is September twenty second, two 2009, and my guest is William Cohen, Wall Street veteran-turned-author. His latest book is House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. Bill, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me, Russ. Our subject today is the subject of your book, House of Cards, The Life and Death of Bear Stearns. We just had the one-year anniversary of the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, which many people view as the beginning of the crisis – but for me, the beginning of the crisis was March 17, 2008, when we read that Bear Stearns had been forced into a marriage with J.P. Morgan Chase, with the Fed and Treasury as matchmaker. I want to talk about those events what, and what led up to that which you so colorfully chronicle in your book. Before we get there, though, I want to start with some basics. Bear Stearns was a complicated creature, especially for those of us outside of Wall Street uh, watching uh, from a distance. Uh, what was it doing? What does a, an investment bank like Bear Stearns do? How does it make its money, and where does it get its funding from?
1: All, all very good questions. I mean, the the if you strip it down to uh, its essence, investment banks are in uh, a surprising number of businesses. Uh, you know, like most uh, complicated big companies, uh, they're in. Uh, uh and in case of bear cerns they had uh, variously at various times uh, an asset management business where they would uh, manage uh, people's uh, wealth uh, uh, or you know and had small uh, brokerage business they had what is traditionally thought of as an investment banking business which means that they uh, raise capital for corporate clients uh, whether it's Debt or equity capital. Uh, they also provide provided uh, advice on mergers and acquisitions, uh, and then they had um, a very large uh, business that uh, you know ended up getting them into lots of trouble, which is uh, what is called a fixed income uh, sales and trading business, where they would trade and underwrite and sell. Uh, uh, securities, debt securities, um, among them being these mortgage-backed securities, which were sort of aggregation of people's home mortgages. That uh, was an, a Wall Street innovation in the early 1980s. That by the uh, middle of this decade became a huge and profitable business on Wall Street. Uh, they had other businesses as well. They, you know, they would invest in private equity deals. They would uh, manage. Uh, the uh, uh, funds for hedge funds uh, and, and manage their trading business for hedge funds. Um, and, you know, it all added up to a 14,000 uh, person firm and the fifth largest securities firm on Wall Street.
0: Yeah. One of the things they did, which is somewhat mysterious to me um, and is uh, part of the reason, although perhaps not the r- real reason, but part of the reason that they were so. Um, was so much focus on preventing their failure was that they are a they do market clearing um, or I don't I don't know what how you describe their role as a intermediary for other firms in in making markets. Can you help me out there?
1: I mean, uh, uh, yes, to some extent. I can, uh, with the caveat that uh, in my 17 years on Wall Street, I was just an, an M&A banker. I, I, I advised on mergers and acquisitions, and a, a, as hard as I have tried to understand some of this, it, some of it escapes me as well, uh, which is quite uh, uh, remarkable in its own right. But
0: yeah, there's uh, a lot of op- there's a lot of opaqueness or opacity. I don't know what the right word is, but it's it's a very complicated world.
1: Yes, and I think it's uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, argot, There's a lot of language that is unique to these firms, uh, and uh, the disclosure is uh, minimal, and you can often never figure out how they make money, uh, which is uh, strange. <laughs> you know, you can figure out that Procter and Gamble makes money by selling soap and toothpaste, but uh, you cannot figure out often how Wall Street makes money. Uh, but what firms like Bear Stearns do and, and, and why they were, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote, too big to fail ultimately was that they uh, have a number of counterparties they trade with. In other words, other Wall Street firms that they are uh, uh, enmeshed in long term trades that are on their books, um, as well as with hedge funds uh, and uh, firms on a global basis that they trade with. So the people owe them money for trades that are have not been unwound they owe people money for trades that have not been unwound um and of course they're all interconnected uh through the way you this is another question you asked which was how do they finance themselves and this became a huge problem uh for Bear Stern uh, at the end is that they were uh very short term oriented in their financing which is of course you know the very nature of uh banking in general which is that banks Uh, borrow short. In other words, they have, uh, uh, in the case of commercial banks, uh, uh, their depositor's money, your money, my money that we put into a bank, uh, which basically costs them nothing to uh, accumulate, right? The the, the only risk for them is that, uh, you know, when you want it, you can go to the ATM machine and get it. And they count on the fact that, that not everybody does that at once, except when, of course... Hmm. Uh, occasionally in the history of mankind, uh, uh, there everybody does want their money at once. And in, in effect, that's what, what happened here, uh, but at an institutional level. So on the one hand, you have commercial banks who who get money from their depositors, and then they lend it out uh, to corporate uh, uh, customers for long term. So they borrow short and lend long. and And Wall Street firms, which don't have a depositor base because they're not really, you know, you can't go to your branch uh, office of of, uh, Bear Stearns and uh, make a deposit, because it wasn't a commercial bank, although it had some banking subsidiaries, uh, they are forced to uh, borrow money in the capital markets, in effect. Uh, And they start off by doing that, uh, by borrowing in what is called the commercial paper market, which is short-term unsecured borrowing, uh, but at the end, Bear Stearns could no longer have access to that because of its own credit problems and was forced into the short-term secured lending market. Uh, and you know they needed to borrow approximately $75 billion a night from these people, uh, people like Federated Investments or Fidelity Investments, uh, and they had maybe 25 people who firms that they were uh, getting this money from on a daily basis, and at the end, uh, they said they weren't going to make those loans, those overnight loans, to Bear Stearns anymore. And they were securing those overnight loans with the very mortgage-backed securities that they were manufacturing, that Bear Stearns was manufacturing and, and was in the business of trying to sell, but by March of 2008, And I know this is getting a little complicated, but by the March of 2008, uh, Bear Stearns could no longer sell those mortgage-backed securities that it was manufacturing and ended up having to keep them uh, in inventory on its own balance sheet and then in turn use those assets to secure the overnight lending it needed on a daily basis. And that whole uh, 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 cycle uh, fell apart in March of 2008.
0: Now, the... Securiti the excuse me, the secured borrowing you're talking about is that's the repurchase market, right? Yes, yeah, also called the repo market. We've talked right. a little bit about that before on the program in a podcast with Arnold Kling. But what they were doing, I mean it's it's really quite extraordinary to think about what role mortgage backed securities played in their in their operations. So let, let me make a a short partial list and um see if I'm getting some picture of what happened. Incredibly they I didn't realize until I read your book how vertically integrated they were. They had a mortgage company that they owned called EMC Correct. which was making subprime loans directly, uh, excuse me, yeah, loans to to homeowners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had their own this part I didn't realize either. they had their own online lending operation called Bear Direct. Um, I want, do you know how, offhand how big that got at its peak? What kind of I mean, dollars were going through there? No, I, I, I think I may have known at one point, yeah. but I don't. So anyway, don't so they're know. out there. They're, Bear Stearns owns or is or is in the business of lending money to people who are relatively high risk. These subprime loans. They are collecting those into securities, which they are both holding on their own books as an investment, selling to others as a as a revenue stream holding in hedge funds that are parts sort of of Bear Stearns that Bear Stearns is investing in as well. And then finally – and they're, of course, slicing these up as well in in what are called the collateralized debt obligations, the CDOs. So they're not just holding these mortgages. They're holding them in extremely complex ways. But finally, they're funding their day-to-day flow of cash operations – … by this repurchase market. So they're they're selling these collateralized debt obligations, the CDOs and the mortgage-backed securities, to other investment banks with the promise that they'll buy them back the next day or the next week or month, some relatively short-term window. And those are the collat so it's it's technically not a loan, but it really is a loan, these these uh this over this repurchase market. And uh, so they're using these extremely complex, highly profitable for a long time, but then suddenly not very profitable at all assets in all those ways. Is that a, is that a way to describe it? Yes, I
1: mean it it, it, it is. And again, it's, it, it, and it's apologies to your listeners for whom this is not um, simplest to understand. But, but you know, it's it's not unlike uh, uh, you know an, an auto. Manufacturer that buys its supplier to become you know, vertically integrated. Sure. I mean, what what this, these mortgage-backed securities? This you know, Wall Street is very good at financial innovation. Uh, whether it's you know high-yield junk bonds or Internet IPOs, or in this case, mortgage-backed securities that were you know uh, dreamed up by a guy named Lou Ranieri at Salomon Brothers in the early 1980s, and like other financial innovations on Wall Street, once somebody comes up with a good idea, everybody rushes to copy it and reproduce it and see if they can make money from it, too. And Bear Stearns was very good at making money from mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and uh, over time, uh, like pretty much everyone else on Wall Street, they worried that they weren't going to get it incredibly. They worried that they weren't going to get enough supply sure. of these mortgages. So they, as you said, they vertically integrated uh, by buying a mortgage uh, underwriter and also by creating this online portal to, for people to get to provide mortgages. and But in that way, they were no different than Lehman, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, uh, and others. So they all right. wanted to, they recognized how you know, profitable this business of packaging up mortgages and selling them uh, off to the world was, uh, and so they wanted to make sure they had a steady supply of these mortgage securities, Um, And and as you pointed out, um, uh, it was a great gig for a long time, Uh, and then in and around sort of the end of 2006, the beginning of 2007, the value of these mortgage-backed securities began to fall in the marketplace, uh, primarily because the people uh, who had borrowed the money uh, to to buy a home uh, probably... Some of them uh, were not in a position to have actually borrowed that money uh, and probably shouldn't have borrowed that money. And as Russ, as you have pointed out quite articulately in some of your writing, this gets back to, you know, the political mandates at the time uh, in, in, in the beginning of the 1990s in, in the Clinton administration and, you know, right up and through the two terms of the Bush administration. Uh, the the uh, people who borrowed... Uh, the, you know the money to buy these homes that they probably shouldn't have borrowed uh, ended up not being able to pay the mortgages. So the mortgage started to default. So the mortgage-backed securities that were created and manufactured and sold around the world based on these mortgages being you know continuing to be paid began to lose value. Now now some in the market saw that as a buying opportunity, as when any. Uh, uh, asset declines in value. Some people view it as a selling opportunity. Some people view it as sure. a buying opportunity. And uh, Bear Stearns viewed it as a buying opportunity, and that was a, a fatal mistake. Uh, as these securities lost lost value, and then they were using them uh, as collateral for their overnight financing.
0: Well, let's Curious
1: go. turn of events.
0: No yeah, doubt about no, it. No, it's really rather. It's an extraordinary story, and you tell it with uh, great flair. Uh, it's uh, the beginnings of uh, what you, one of the things you trace, and, and it's um, it's a very um, it's a fascinating piece of the puzzle is the cultural norms at Bear Stearns. I, I want to put those to the side, although they're they're quite interesting, and I want to skip ahead from the the, you know, the origins of the firm, which are really quite quite interesting. But let's move to the summer of early part of oh seven. Uh, where you as you mentioned, the default rate starts to climb on these on these mortgages, and the markets start to realize people in the market start to realize that these assets that they have been buying and selling may not be as worth as much as they thought, but they 're not quite sure how much that reduction is going to be, partly because they don 't know what the default rate's going to go to but also partly because these instruments are complex. People are holding uh, different pieces of these of these mortgages. So one of the issues is that the ratings agencies, which I think are overrated as a cause of the crisis, but the ratings agencies did rate these as AAA, many of them, and they rated them as AAA because of the tranching system. That is that they anticipated some defaults uh, on the – riskier parts of the package but the uh, there was a sort of a firewall uh, the 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 top of the package the so-called senior tranches were insulated from these defaults so what went wrong in this time period did the default rates get higher than they anticipated
1: yes that was uh, very much part of it uh, historical default rates started moving up uh, as And the rating agencies were aware of this, although it it, it took them by surprise. I mean, uh, I I, I had written an article a few months back uh, in Fortune about uh, uh, McGraw-Hill and S&P and their role in all of this. Uh, And the head of S&P at that time uh, told me that he was surprised at how swiftly uh, the uh, default rates had moved up and took them by surprise. But, you know, it, it was also, I think, sort of a... Uh, a bit of um, a false comfort that everyone was taking from this, um, you know, high degree of structuring. Uh, and, and if you if you ever uh, are, are so uh, bored in your own life, uh, and I'm sure you wouldn't be, that you wanted to ever read one of these mortgage-backed securities documents. Uh, there's all this, you know, uh, uh, incomprehensible language. Of course, uh, that's standard, as we know, in any SEC document. Uh, uh, But, you know, there's this sort of false sense of security that you get uh, that they were trying to portray, uh, you know, by tranching out all of these uh, levels of, of these securities and assigning AAA ratings to the top of them, which, by the way, the underwriters were paying for with the rating
0: agencies. Right. In other words... Everybody uh, knew that. So I always find that... I mean, there is an p- obvious conflict of interest there, but everyone was aware of that conflict of interest. That wasn't a secret.
1: That 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 is true. Uh, but, you know, for instance, you know, I'm not... Uh, every, every mortgage-backed security is a little different, but, you know, some of them would uh, be made up of second mortgages. So, hmm. a, you know, people would have a first mortgage on their home, and then they would take out a second mortgage. So... So There would be a second mortgage on uh, a whole series of homes of, of people who didn't have the best credit ratings to begin with, yeah. and then that would all be packaged up, and the senior most part of that was rated AAA. Well, I mean, to me, that is what I would call sort of false sense of security.
0: Yeah, the, my analogy is uh, to the Titanic. You know, it was the ship that couldn't sink because if there was a leak, the damage would be limited to just this one area. Um, it's the same kind of hubris and logic uh, and overconfidence with these securities. The idea was, well, sure, there's going to be some defaults, but they'll be the the overall package will be safe because it, there's no way that everybody's going to default. It's a national housing market. I mean, there isn't a national housing market. There's regional things that'll go wrong. There might be a spike up in unemployment in Detroit, but that's not going to hurt the whole package. And that was um, there was a surprise there for sure. Um, but let, Let's go back to the summer, and, and this is even more complicated, but it's worth getting into for a little bit because I found it really uh, rather incredible because you hear about this, you know that, that in the summer of 07, uh, the first warning sign that Bear Stearns was in trouble came about when their two hedge funds uh, had trouble. And without going into all of the details, which we could spend four or five hours on, no doubt, uh, Try to explain the relationship between the parent company, Bear Stearns, and these hedge funds because I always assumed when I would read about them that, well, Bear Stearns, and like you say, they manage people's money. They had an asset management thing. I just assumed these hedge funds were um, an integral part of Bear Stearns. They actually weren't, and as you point out in the book, for a long time, Bear Stearns' total commitment to these funds, which were in the billions – was actually only twenty million dollars. It Later, went up to a forty-five million dollar stake. So when they went bust because they were holding so many asset, uh, so many mortgage-backed securities that were defaulting uh, on the on the surface, it would seem not to have any impact on Bear Stearns because Bear Stearns stake in these firms was these funds were so small. What happened there that changed that and started the uh, slow uh, death spiral, uh, which was about what twelve months later, nine months later.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's a f- fascinating decision by the top management of, uh, of Bear Stearns. Um, you no, know, they were called you know they were called Bear Stearns hedge funds, and they had you know sort of weird names, uh, typical Wall Street jargon kind of names. But they were part of Bear Stearns asset management, and and, and you're right, uh, Bear Stearns itself had a small Investment in it, and basically they sold these hedge funds because everybody wanted to invest in hedge funds at that. You know, these things get get you know crazy. People think that they can
0: automatic money, free automatic money. money, right? So twenty percent rate of return.
1: So Bear Stearns, of course, figured. Uh, not only did they had a couple of problems to solve, they they had people inside the firm who wanted to be hedge fund managers, and they didn't want to lose them, so they made them hedge fund managers, even though they had no hedge fund management uh, experience like this guy Ralph Cioffi and Matthew Tanin who ran these funds uh, and who, whose trial for uh, in, in federal court in Brooklyn is going to begin uh, in a few weeks um, that, uh, and so that was one problem they wanted to solve the other problem is that they had a lot of uh, clients uh, and investors who wanted to be invested in hedge funds so it was a perfect way to you know for them to think about making money but Uh, what, what happened, of course, fatally, uh, as the hedge funds started to, uh, fall apart, uh, in, in June of 2007, and they ended up being liquidated in July of 2007, is that, uh, you know, investors and clients expect, because they're called, you know, they're associated with Bear Stearns, that somehow Bear Stearns will step up, and if things go wrong, you know, bail out the investors. Uh, Bear Stearns, you know, and, and, and Goldman Sachs had had a similar situation with their Alpha Funds a few months earlier, and so Goldman Sachs did step up and bail out some of their investors, and a lot of the people in the Bear Stearns hedge Fund wanted Bear Stearns to do the same thing. Uh, now, Bear Stearns decided not to do that. They decided not to bail out the investors, and the investors lost approximately $1.6 billion, their entire investment. But, what they did do, which was a fatal mistake, was they bailed out the overnight repo lenders, just like Bear Stearns itself was reliant on overnight financing for its very existence to the tune of $75 billion a night. Uh, the hedge funds were in the repo market as well, using the mortgage securities that they had invested in in the hedge fund as collateral for overnight financing that allowed them to operate and to make other investments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and what happened in July of '07, which was fatal, ultimately, was that the management committee of Bear Stearns, although Jimmy Kane dissented, the CEO, uh, maybe one of his only uh, correct thought processes <laughs> at that time, was that the Bear Stearns decided had to take out. Uh, and become the repo lender to the hedge funds, become the overnight lender to the hedge funds, because all the other overnight lenders, which were basically the rest of Wall Street firms, wanted their money back. So Bear Stearns, the parent, paid those lenders their money, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, and then became the overnight financer to the hedge funds. And then which meant July, that, Which
0: meant they were holding as collateral... The crummy, toxic crummy. stuff that the hedge fund had bought in which Correct. investors were getting increasingly – and lenders increasingly antsy about.
1: Correct. And then when the funds were liquidated at the end of July, Bear Stearns, the parent, ended up getting even more of this mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet than they already had, which they already had more than they could handle at the moment anyway. But then they ended up taking another you know, billion and a half of this stuff onto their balance sheet. And then in the fall, the third quarter of two thousand seven, uh, they experienced the first loss in their eighty-four year history as a result of writing down the value of the of the collateral, the mortgage-backed securities they had just taken onto their balance sheet. And so, this, of course, led to the you know the, the eventual death spiral.
0: So I want to just go back for a minute and do a little bit of the nuts and bolts again because I, I I knew nothing about this and it really helped me understand some of what had uh, had happened. So you've got these these people, uh, Shafi and Tanine running these Be- Bear Stearns hedge funds that are sort of Bear Stearns, sort of not Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns has their name on them. They're part of Bear Stearns Asset Management, a piece of Bear Stearns. But the parent company is only tangentially involved other than his oversight and putting their brand name on it. These hedge funds are operating. I mean, most most of, most of us don't have any experience with this. Uh, they take in money from clients and they manage it. But every once in a while, they're going to see opportunities and they're going to want more cash than they have in their asset base in their in their client base. So they're going to borrow money to make trades that they otherwise wouldn't be able to make to enhance the returns to those those uh, clients, and they're going to do that with borrowed money. And the bar, the lenders, and this is the part I think is so important because I want to see how the story carries through to Bear Stearns itself. These hedge funds are borrowing money not from individual investors, not from clients, but from uh, the standard uh, great names on Wall Street that everybody else is borrowing from. Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Lehman, Credit Suisse, et cetera, correct? Correct. So there's a point in the story. I mean, this is just a beautiful um, well, not beautiful's not the right word uh maybe it's poignant, maybe it's uh powerful i don't know, but there's a credible moment in your story where the hedge funds are basically uh they're basically defunct in that the assets that they've been holding to cover their loans the the collateral are worth dramatically less uh than they thought instead of being a hundred cents on the dollar or even 98 or 97, it looks like it more might be more like 50 cents or 30 cents because of the default rates we've been talking about going up. So there's a meeting where all the lenders to these funds who are clearly not going to all get their money back, uh, or maybe none of them are going to get their money back, are in a room with the Bear Stearns parent group saying, hey, you know what's going on here? You've lent. We've lent you a lot of money, and it's hundreds of millions, and sometimes billions of dollars. We lent you that on the condition that the collateral you gave us was good. It turns out it's not. So what do we do now? And the answer that Jimmy Kaine gives when he, you say he said no, the answer is: Well, you took you paid your money. You took your chances. And the, the beautiful or powerful or poignant moment is that this is a replay of what had happened. Nine years before in 1998 when long-term capital management, a similarly highly leveraged hedge fund, was, had basically said we can't keep our promises. And the Fed orchestrates uh, a bailout of its creditors that all of Wall Street participates in except for one firm, and that's Bear Stearns. So now Bear Stearns is trying to do the exact same thing. The irony is, is that, that they did nine years before. The problem is, is it's their firm. It's unbelievable, and and as you report, the other Bear Stearns executives, other than Kane, other than the CEO, said we can't do this. So, wh- am I right in that? In that, am I getting the story right? And is that
1: well? It was it was actually a uh, Kane who said, just as he had, uh, ten, you know, nine years earlier with Long Term Capital Management, he's the one that said we can't do this. He's the one who said, I think as you said, uh, you know, you paid your money to this fund, you lent to this fund. You know, you're big boys. You're Merrill Lynch. You're yeah. your Credit suite, You know, you took your chances, and it didn't work out. So, too bad for you. You know, and, and his argument was, look, they're big boys. You know, just like he told long-term capital management. You know, we've we've done our thing. We've we've supported this as much as we're going to. At that point, they had forty-five million dollars on the line, but unfortunately, the rest of the executive uh, uh, management team, which was, uh, uh, you know, a couple of. Committees was about 20 people, you know, voted uh, Jimmy Kane down. And uh, Bayer agreed to become, this is how the parent company got involved with the hedge comp- funds, uh, be- agreed to become the overnight lender to the funds at, of course, the exact wrong moment. Uh, and they p- ended up paying out uh, all the other uh, uh, lenders that, who instead were facing a huge loss got most of their money back. And then Bear Stearns ended up losing everything they had just put in literally um, a month later.
0: Now, then – so that was July. Yes. Uh, they are going to live for nine more months. Yes. And in those nine months, here's the part that I find fascinating, and I'm um, i – we'll, we'll get to the incentives that these executives are facing uh, all along. But during those nine months, as you say, Bear Stearns is – They're holding a lot of these mortgage-backed securities on their own books directly that they had either issued themselves or bought from other issuers. They are uh, essentially guaranteeing implicitly the the holdings of their hedge fund uh, and compensating or repaying the lenders who had financed those. They're doing all that with their own borrowed money. They themselves continue to be extremely active in the overnight – and short-term bar, uh, borrowing market, correct?
1: Yes, uh, you know, and hence the title of the book, House of Cards, because it literally was, uh, you know, bar- borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, uh, and it, you know, I, I view it as, you know, you, you mentioned, well, you know, they survive for another nine months. It's, it's not unlike, you know, sadly, you know, if, if somebody gets a, the, you know, terminal illness and they're informed and you know they carry on for a period of time, and then uh, they don't. And um, uh, I think that's what the situation was here. I mean, certainly uh, B- Bear kind of—if uh, if they didn't know they were in trouble by the spring of 2007, which I suspect they didn't really. Uh, there's no question that they should have known, and I think some people at Bear did know, although not the top management for some reason, or they—they they knew they pretended not to know uh that by the summer of 2007 they were in serious trouble and and what began to happen was that they could no longer uh, uh they weren't big on you know long-term borrowing anyway uh but their uh short-term borrowing uh which they they did because it was less expensive than long-term borrowing which gets back to the management incentives uh began the market basically wouldn't provide them uh 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 even Longer-term, short-term financing, if you know what I mean. In other words, uh, A few months, th- yeah. their, their lending really got short. The market said, you know what, we're not, we, don't, we don't like your credit anymore. Uh, we're going to really shorten up the amount of money that we uh, – you know, the time frame
0: of the money that we lend you. Because we think you're going to be here tomorrow, but you're, you're probably going to be here tomorrow, but you might not be here in three months.
1: Right, which is actually, an, you know, an incredible uh, concept in itself, because the firm had been around for eighty four years and had never had a losing quarter. And, and you know, you know, while Wall Street has always been a dangerous place, you know, there hadn't been uh, a you know a calamitous uh, uh, you know incident with a firm going out of business since you know ninety one when Drexel went out of business, but. but you know, at least there, you could say, well, the, you know, that the, there was maybe may have been a criminal enterprise with, you know, Milken and the junk bonds and all that. Uh, you know, basically, firms started to after they all went public, they got bigger and bigger, uh, and uh, more uh, entwined with other firms, and you know, then we lead to where we are now, which is too big to fail. But no, no firm that had gone public and that was this big, uh, you know, had even, you know. Been on the brink of failure uh, uh let alone you know fallen into the abyss and then in in the space of you know six months you've got all these firms falling into the to the abyss uh, uh but the the fact that the market was saying in effect uh you know we think it'll be here tomorrow but not three months from now was incredible in itself and then you know by March of two thousand eight uh as I pointed out in the book i mean you know Hedge funds and and, and other con- you know big investors were making bets, short-term bets that Bear's stock, you know, by buying puts, uh, would would which was essentially a short-term bet against a company's stock, uh, would be out of existence, you know, in a week. And it turned out that they were absolutely right, which yeah. you know raises all sorts of questions on its own.
0: Yeah, uh, but on this you know this issue of whether they when did they know, and how you know vivid was their knowledge of their of their their precariousness of their position? Have you when you talk to them? I I didn't notice it in the book, and I know this is not the uh, strong suit of of these kind of people. But have you thought about, or did you ask them what they might have done differently? Obviously, some of them regret the backing of the hedge funds. But even if they hadn't backed the hedge funds, even if they'd said twist in the wind to their other to their other um, Wall Street firms, you know, there was a real chance at that point that, out of pure spite, the the rest of the firms on Wall Street wouldn't play ball with them, wouldn't clear with them, wouldn't um, lend to them to Bear Stearns overnight anyway, and it might have just sped the process up. But once that decision was made, what might Bear have done differently? Have, oh, have you thought about that? Have, did they Ford. think about it?
1: Yes, I mean they're not I, a very I,
0: introspective group of folks. At least, no, they but at least the, they don't share it.
1: Given that this happened, um, you know, I've now written a new uh, afterword for the paperback edition of the book, which is coming out in, in January, and explored that very question with Alan Schwartz, who was the CEO of the firm at the end, and uh, for three months, and uh, his basic conclusion, and he's not wrong
0: and he'd been there for a long long time. It wasn't oh, like there. He just he'd showed been up.
1: There for you know 20 30 years, right? 20 30 yeah. years. Uh, his conclusion and in the senior executive position for you know 15 of those years. Uh, his his conclusion was that, you know, if you really cut through it all and you could talk about, you know, you know, maybe we could have uh you know, bought Newburger and Berman or bought this business or that business or gotten bigger in this business or had lengthened out our financing or whatever it was. Uh, His conclusion, you know, as recently as a month ago, uh, was that uh, we had no choice but to uh, have sold. In other words, our only way out of this was to have sold, uh, and they didn't do that. And and what he means by that is that the whole business plan of the firm, going back, you know, many years, uh, had been so heavily dependent on the fixed income group and the manufacture of these debt securities of which they made a tremendous amount of money for a very long time and paid themselves huge compensation over a very long time. At one point, you know, Jimmy Kane's stock in Bear Stearns was more, worth more than a billion dollars, and he was the only Wall Street CEO uh, whose stock was worth more, his personal stock was worth more than a billion dollars, and he took great pride in that. So, you know, hubris and ego, of course, get in the way of this. Say nothing of greed. Uh, you know, and he, they didn't want to change their their business plan. They liked it because it was, it was doing making well, them yeah. a lot of money. And by the time they realized that they had infected themselves with cancer, you know, it was it was too late to do anything about it.
0: I'm thinking about it on a more day to day basis. One of the things I've been thinking there are two issues I've been thinking about is the underlying cause of the crisis. One is is the leverage. Uh, the amount of borrowing. And I, I'm curious how uh do you have any feel for how long that had gone on. As you point out in the book, Bear Stearns at the end is is typically leveraged in a in a month anywhere from thirty to fifty to one. Yeah. Meaning that that a $1, one to three dollars of their of every hundred dollars are their assets the other ninety eight nine to nine ninety seven to ninety nine dollars per hundred are borrowed?
1: It would be if you could buy a house putting down two two percent of the purchase price in equity,
0: which and of course, borrow the rest. Which of course you could during this time, which is part of the other part of the problem. What I'm starting to see this whole phenomenon is it was a lot of people playing with other people's money. The, the puzzle then is why did the other people uh, finance those 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 bets? Um, But I'm thinking in the short run, if you're leveraged 30 to 1 or 40 to 1 or 50 to 1, the obvious thought to do to prevent death uh, is to retrench. It's to raise capital. It's to lower the amount you have to borrow so that if the bad times do come, it's not a death blow. They did not do that, Uh, and neither did Lehman Brothers in the aftermath of Bear Stearns' collapse, which is strange because Lehman was also – had a very similar balance sheet
1: yes i mean uh, there's no question bear Stearns did not do that at all
0: uh they said though, they did by the way you you quote in the book many times they'd claim their capital rec- their capital cushion is large it's healthy it wasn't right. true
1: right i mean by you know by the sec guidelines that is true um but so when did the leverage start getting out of control? The leverage started getting really out of control in June of 2004 when the SEC passed new guidelines on leverage for Wall Street, which Wall Street had been lobbying for ever since the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 because they felt that, uh, you know, commercial banks were now able to compete directly uh, with them, uh, which is something that had been going on through much of the 90s anyway, but now it was, fact, it was the law of the land and they figured the way that they could make more money with this new competition was to have more leverage. and banks of course being regulated by the Fed uh, could only have you know say 10 to 12 times leverage. Uh, investment banks not regulated by the Fed but regulated by the SEC lobbied uh, uh, for that change, got the SEC to agree to the change in June of 2004. And as the quid pro quo, the SEC was supposed to do a lot more monitoring of what went on at these firms. Unfortunately, the SEC forgot to do that uh, until it was too late. So you have the first appearance of the SEC at Bear Stearns in August of 2007, more than three years later. Uh, If they had been monitoring it closely all along, uh, maybe they would have forced them to bring down the leverage, but they didn't.
0: But as you point out, even at that meeting, they kind of went like, "Oh, that's okay." <laughs> yeah, well,
1: of course. It was it was the same weekend that they were, you know, firing uh, Warren Spector, the head of the Fixed Income Group, and that KKR, the private equity firm, was in there offering to put more capital into Bear Stearns. This was in August of '07. Now, now, the executive committee of Bear Stearns, which was compensated on a return on equity calculation, which meant that. They wanted to figure out a way to be as profitable as they could using as little capital as they could. And therefore, that fraction, to be high, in other words, to maximize that fraction, they needed to minimize the denominator of the fraction. In other words, minimize the amount of capital they had in the firm. So they constantly refused capital from everybody who was trying to throw it at them during the last year of its existence. And this was, you know, another fatal flaw that the firm made. You know, Alan Schwartz would argue that it was, you know, too late already. Well, you know, it, 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 it might have been, but to not take capital from anyone so that you could make your return on equity calculation high so that you could pay yourself, you know, as much as possible, you know, was utterly short-sighted.
0: Well, let, I want to, let's turn to those incentives because uh, we have uh... – I will be interviewing some folks soon for this program on this issue explicitly, but I want to focus in on Bear Stearns. Uh, from the outside, uh, I always and we've talked to other uh, guests on the show about about this issue, and they take a different position now than I've come to. But from the outside, it looks like, well, come on, Bear Stearns didn't want to kill itself. You know, why would they leverage themselves so much? You know, why would they be so at risk of? Of death, and let me just mention: when you're leveraged, you know, fifty to one, and you have two dollars for every ninety-eight that you spent, uh, every hundred you spend, and the ninety-eights borrowed, a small change in the value of your assets means you're going to be insolvent. That your cap, your collateral is no longer covering the, the loan, and that's basically what happened to most of the firms that that we've been talking about who didn't make it: Merrill Lynch and Lehman and, and AIG. They were so leveraged that that these changes in Asset value, which normally just would have been a bad quarter, ended up being the end of the firm. The standard argument is, well, you know, Bear Stearns didn't want that to happen. They didn't want it. Why wouldn't wouldn't they take enough care on that? Why wasn't there enough incentive for them to take care? And I'm starting to come to the view that those incentives weren't there because they were counting on being bailed out. And along the way, they made an enormous amount of money. And they didn't pay much of a price. What do you think
1: of that? Well, I think that uh, you know, the, the circumstances surrounding each firm are a little different. I, 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 you know, when it came to Bear Stearns, uh, I don't think they thought about whether they would be bailed out or not bailed out uh, because that whole concept hadn't even come up yet. Uh, I don't think it was conceivable to them that anything like what happened could have happened. In other words, I just don't think they thought about it, which is fascinating in itself. Uh, I think they did not understand, and for all their vaunted risk management skills, I don't think they understood how vulnerable they had made their firm. I don't think they understood at the executive committee level, especially after they fired Warren Spector in August 2007, how risky the firm's business plan was between Manufacturing these mortgage-backed securities and then using that those securities as collateral in the overnight financing market, how risky they had become, and let alone even conceived of the fact that the overnight lenders could say, you know, in March of 2008, you know, we're not going to do
0: business with you anymore. Right, but those overnight lenders were, of course, uh, aware. That it was their money on the line, not Bear Stearns as much as anything else. It was their money, and they kept lending that money. I'm not going to suggest that they sat around and said, well, this is risk-free because the government will end up stepping in. Of course, the government does step in, and those lenders are uh, insulated from the the cost. The the shareholders are not, but the creditors and counterparties who had had financed all of those bad bets ended up uh, getting most of their money back. seems like a rather bad incentive.
1: I mean, I, I think that, um, what, as, as you alluded to before, I mean, since these firms started going public in, in 1970 is the 1970s when this firm Donaldson, Lovkin, Jane, Rent went public and Bear Stearns went public in 1985, uh, uh, what had been their own money, what had been the individual partner's money that was on the line and their entire net worth that was on the line, on a day-to-day basis, became other people's money on the line—shareholders, creditors—and even though these guys could say, "Well, you know, we still owned, you know, forty percent of the equity of this firm," and even though Jimmy Keynes could say, "You know, I had a billion dollars worth of equity in Bear Stearns," and you would think that would be plenty of incentive—that uh, all the incentive that I needed to monitor things closely. In fact, over the years, he had taken out. You know, you know, several hundred millions of dollars in cash that he had, you know, tucked away, and knew that, uh, you know, he was essentially playing with the house's money. Yep. As he said to me, you know, losing a billion dollars wasn't going to affect me and the way I lived. It's going to affect, you know, my heirs.
0: And not that much, because he said he was. This is my favorite quote in the book. He says he's left with a mere six hundred million.
1: A mere six hundred million, which was probably an exaggeration. Which there was no way I could verify, but nevertheless,
0: I've seen four hundred mentioned.
1: Right. So even if it was four hundred, I mean, this is a guy who you know, uh, uh, as he likes to say, you know, grew grew up in the north side of Chicago. His father was a patent attorney, and you know, in in the forties and fifties, never made more than seventy five thousand dollars a year, which seemed like a lot to me, (laughs) especially at that time. You bet. Uh, And you know, moved to New York. To become a professional bridge player, making what he hoped would be five hundred dollars a week, and now had made, you know, had stocked away several hundred million dollars. So, you know, he had everything he wanted. I mean, you know, and and had, you know, completely lost sight and wasn't that good a, a risk manager to begin with. In fact, probably had no no conception of what the risks that the firm was taking. Although he certainly was aware of how, of how profitable and how wealthy he was becoming
0: and as you point out, his salary was quite substantial and the tens you know depends sometimes his salary was in the form of stock, sometimes it was cash and stock, sometimes it was cash stock and options right. but over the years uh as as you say he was he was investing some large chunk of that money elsewhere as a as a backstop and um and he wasn't alone. I think it's important to mention this his you know, this has been the puzzle for me and i and i asked. Uh, Ricardo Ribonato, who's the chief risk officer of the Royal Bank of Scotland, which had a similar uh, meltdown and was taken over by uh, the Bank of England, uh, they went they went bankrupt. And his claim was, well, you know, these people lost a lot of money, and of course they did. And he said, you know, they they didn't think that they were going to get bailed out; they weren't counting on being bailed out. And all that's true. I don't think they sat around and said, "Let's roll the dice because uh, we won't have to pay any of the costs." But the fact is, they didn't pay much of the costs. And while Jimmy Kane lost a billion dollars on paper from the stock's high of 172 uh, and change to its, uh, he, he, it's a great story in the book where he, he ends up selling not at the two dollar price or even the ultimate ten dollar price, but at the a little higher than that in the week where they're where J.P. Morgan's and the Treasury and the Fed and the and the public are arguing and Bear's stockholders are arguing, so he ends up selling his. Six plus million shares for sixty-one million bucks instead of the one point something billion it was worth uh, fifteen months before. So it looks like he takes an enormous loss. But of course, those paper gains he had, he couldn't cash those out. He was the CEO when he gets fired and or resigns, whatever you want to call it, in December of '07. Oh, excuse me, of um, yeah of '07. He he explicitly is told he can't sell the stock. Um, he agrees not to sell. He agrees not to sell, and it would be rather awkward to right. sell it when at that point it's what seventy or so. So he has to settle, poor guy, for his whatever hundreds of millions of dollars, and the other executives, or I assume and you may—I'd like to hear you speak to this—they had a similar uh, nest egg that they had accumulated over the years. They they didn't get wiped out like the like the you'd think from the equity losses. Well,
1: oh, that's absolutely correct. I mean that that's that's the that's the flaw on all of Wall Street at the moment. I mean all this uh, much so much is made of the you know. Uh, you know, equity participation that these guys have in their company's stock. Well, what people aren't focusing on is the fact that, you know, even if 50% of their compensation is in the stock of the company, the other 50% is in cash. And by the way, that cash portion alone is, you know, many multiples of what anybody would, most people in any given year would, would expect to make in a lifetime. Yeah. So, I mean, the the amount of pay on Wall Street is completely out of whack compared to other noble professions. And so that when you're getting only 50% of that in cash, and you can say, well, I'm rolling another 50% in the equity of my company, and so of course I care about it. The fact of the matter is they're using their 50% in cash to live a lifestyle that other people could only dream about.
0: And, of course, many of them sell pieces of that that equity along the way and, and cash it out. Uh, you mentioned Warren Spector who through a, through political machinations of Kane is forced to sell a large chunk that turned out to be a really good deal for him at the time he wasn't happy about it but he made i assume hundreds of millions of dollars from that yeah, something that's. like 3 or 400 million dollars so uh the incentives uh as as uh as one economist put it to me uh, if anything the the stock is the cover for what they do, rather than the, um, the stick or the or the carrot. Um,
1: I, I, I agree with that. It, it, it makes everything else they do palatable, to, right. to the general public, right? Because they
0: say we're well, we're we're in it with you, but they're not right. really.
1: But they're not. <laughs> yeah. Once upon a time, by the way, Russ, they were in it with us, so to speak, or we we weren't even in it. They they were whole in it themselves when it was when these were private partnerships and their whole net worths were on the line. Therefore, they were much more careful about the decisions that they made and the business lines that they got into. I mean, I worked at Lazard for for six years, and that was a private partnership from 1848 until 2005. And there was a reason that Lazard stayed solely in the business of providing M&A advice because no capital was required, and the only thing at risk was basically your reputation. There was no capital at risk. And you weren't using other people's money to make big bets while paying yourself big salaries and bonuses you know, along the way. Any money that you made, you made from your own intellectual capital. And you had to redo it every single year. Well, the rest of Wall Street you know, used to be like Lazard. Lazard used to be like the rest of Wall Street until you know, they, ended, they started going public, taking money from other people, creditors, investors, equity holders and making these huge bets, risky bets knowing all along that the whole deal, the whole gamble, the whole bet was to make as much revenue as you possibly could in any given quarter in any given year so that your bonus would be maxed out.
0: Yeah, and I and I think it's it's important to you know, we're, you and I are talking about it, you know that they're they're playing with our money, not just their own, but of course, they were really playing with each other's money. Uh, and our money came into it as taxpayers, not as investors. We didn't share in the good times. Uh, Their fellow funders shared in those good times, and we've now paid for the consequences of that rather than the people who made the bets or funded the bets, and I think that's uh, really damaging to democracy and and capitalism. I'm very depressed about it. Uh, The other thing I want to mention, though, and get your reaction to is – I think the other mistake we make, besides saying, "Oh well, they had a stake in it; they had all this equity," well, we were focusing on the firms whose bets didn't turn out. It wasn't; it's always uncertain. You know, Merrill Lynch and and Bear and Lehman didn't sit around saying, "Well, we'll drive our com- our companies into bankruptcy." That well, maybe you know, but we'll make money along the way. They didn't. They rolled the dice. And the point is, is that other firms that did something similar, they didn't go bankrupt. So at Goldman. And at JPMorgan Chase, who did a lot of the same things, just not quite as much, if I if I understand it correctly, they had their cake and ate it too. They made the loans, they got compensated as Goldman has for the AIG bail through the AIG bailout, and they make the stock returns.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean Go- Goldman is smart enough, as they like to say, to be long term greedy. So in December of two thousand six, as I've written about. Um, others have too. Uh, they made the decision to, uh, in effect, pull back from the mortgage securities market and trading of mortgage securities uh, and, and, and to say nothing of using them as collateral. I mean, they just made a firm wide decision to pull back from all that. It turned out to be the right decision. And they are, you know, flying high today as a result of that decision in December of 2006. I believe that was really the. the the key decision in all of this uh, in, t- in terms of Wall Street executives thinking through this issue and the potential risks that were associated. Goldman made this decision, pulled back, and that should have been a signal to the market that some very smart guys had changed their mind about all of this. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, at the rest of Wall Street, uh, it was just an opportunity to double down, and which is exactly what the rest of them did
0: and to And to look better than Goldman for a while, because those quarterly returns for a while were better than theirs because of the risks
1: yes that's, that's true uh, and, and Goldman also you know was less reliant on the short term overnight funding market, and yes, it cost them uh, more in interest payments to get longer term financing, and as accordingly, you know they were less profitable than they could have been had they decided to be more involved in the short-term financing market, but they also didn't want to give their short-term overnight lenders a vote every night about whether to keep doing business with them. So, I mean, there are differentiations on Wall Street. You know, you could have into the whole argument of, well, you know, what what did Goldman know and when did it know it, and it's all friends in Washington, et cetera. But, you know, without getting into all of that, if you just look at what they did at 85 Broad Street that was different than what other firms did, there were big differences, and they benefited as a result. And, you know, you have to keep reminding yourself that Wall Street is not monolithic. It's a bunch of people making decisions based on incentives that they have individually, and that can lead to a series of bad decisions, which is what happened in this crisis. And, by the way, it wasn't the first time that we found ourselves in this situation on Wall Street. It's like the tenth time since these firms started going public, and and that's why I, I get so you know, outraged when I think about the fact that we're going back to that so quickly without any reform of this system.
0: Why do you say it's the 10th time? What else? What other episodes are you thinking of?
1: I'm, th- I'm thinking of, uh, uh, you know, a month after I started on Wall Street, which was in September of 87. We had the crash of, 19, of October of 87 when the market went down 22.6% in one day and grown men were crying in front of Quotron machines and talking about how they would never let this happen again. Well, that happened because of the the bubble that was created in high yield junk bonds, and 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 the, the the amount of money that was being borrowed so that you know to to pump up this whole leverage buyout business. You know that was another bubble that formed. Another bubble that formed was internet IPOs in the late '90s, and and there was a bubble in emerging telecom debt, and there were crises in, in East Asia and Mexico, and you know these. The, the, the way that the combination, the deadly combination of financial innovation on Wall Street and the compensation system on Wall Street uh, and the fact that they're using other people's money because uh, of being public companies uh, has created this uh, seemingly never-ending cycle of boom and bust and bubbles being inflated and bursting. And we haven't changed a thing about that, you know, as we, even though we've gone through this traumatic experience.
0: Yeah, I know. Um well we're going we're going to continue to talk about uh this issue for the next uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months cuz I think it's it's a key part of the problem that hasn't been fully uh both explored publicly or certainly here. Uh before we close, you interviewed a lot of um colorful and extraordinary <laughs> uh people uh flawed and brilliant and Clever and um, naive and blind and all kinds of things. Uh, What's happened to those folks? One of the things I also think we often forget: we say, "Oh, Bear Stearns died." There's something embarrassing about that for these folks. I'm sure their coffee, uh, their cocktail party conversation is not quite as sparkling because they presided or were at the um, uh, on the watch of the death of an 85 year old company but they didn't they didn't die we've talked about jimmy kane who who was left with a mere whatever it is four to six hundred million dollars uh What are some of the other executives doing and how how are their um how are their balance sheets that, that you know of
1: yeah well in in, in truth their their you know net worths have taken a hit, but probably yeah. not as much as you'd expect i mean uh jimmy kane uh had uh who's you know officially retired uh Still playing a lot of bridge at the national level, uh, uh, you know his net worth took, took a hit. Uh, but you know most of the other executives uh, at Bear Stearns had been selling stock right along. Jimmy Kane, you know, had been selling stock too. But uh, even though he would like you to believe that he hadn't, uh, uh, others had been selling much more. So you've got you know Warren Spector, uh, who was fired in August of two thousand seven. Uh, it was probably worth three or four hundred million dollars. Uh, 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 Alan Schwartz, who was the CEO at the end, uh, probably you know, something like the same zip code, maybe less. Uh, he's now uh, a senior executive at something called Guggenheim Partners, where he's trying to, as he has said, you know, recreate the mini Bear Stearns. Uh, uh, there, uh, Ace Greenberg, who was the longtime CEO before Jimmy Kane. Uh, and then remained on the executive committee uh, during Jimmy Kane's, uh reign, and then afterwards is still at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I th- he, had, he had been probably the most aggressive seller of the stock all along. Uh, and he's supposedly, you know, writing a book about all this. Uh, uh, probably the one guy who was on the executive committee uh, who doesn't get mentioned as much was the CFO, uh, Sam Molinaro. Uh, He has not found uh, new work, and I think he probably is suffering more than his colleagues. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting that because of death order here, the fact that Bear Stearns uh, went out of business first, ended up getting $10 a share in stock and J.P. Morgan stock, which is, you know, J.P. Morgan stock has rebounded. So uh, a lot of shareholders and employees who own the stock have actually, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, benefited, but, you know, didn't nearly lose as much as, say, Lehman uh, shareholders who lost everything. And the creditors of Bear, Bear Stearns got bailed out at 100 cents on the dollar uh, versus the Lehman creditors who got about 10% on Slightly the dollar. Slightly less. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and a lot of the people at Bear Stearns have managed to get, you know, new jobs, not not nearly, you know, making as much as they had been or lucrative. and they And a lot of them seem, you know, sort of a bit depressed by all that's happened, which I can understand. But you know, a lot of them have moved on and you know, chalked it up.
0: My guest today has been William Cohen, author of House of Cards. He's also the author. He mentioned his book on Lazard, uh, The Last Tycoons, which I will look forward to. I look forward to reading. Bill, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. Thank you for having me.